In January of 1991, Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario, brought together speakers to discuss the impending war in the Persian Gulf. The United Nations Security Council gave Iraq a deadline to withdraw from Kuwait, which it had invaded in August of 1990, or face the attack of allied countries led by the U.S. Many of the speakers and the organizations they represented had connections to the Middle East. I was sent to cover the event for radio station DC 103.5 in Orangeville. The only name on the panel that I recognized was Anne Medina, a reporter with CBC Television in Canada who had covered the Middle East. A colleague of mine at the radio station commented, she ought to be good, and she was. I would record her words and use what she said as a learning tool in my young career and to spark some inspiration during those times when I wondered, maybe it's time to pack it in. Reporters to be reporters must be witnesses because again and again in South Lebanon, in Uganda, in how many situations in the Middle East that I've covered, I found that I'm told one thing and when I actually see it and witness it, something else happens. It was a pleasure to speak to her for this podcast to discuss that day and some of the stories she covered during her long and exciting career. We got talking about watching the news, especially international news, which was once her beat. And I wondered if watching an intriguing story would trigger something that would make her say, ah, wish I was covering that. Here's what she said. Not really, because then is then, now is now, uh, and I'm not even talking about being 73 years old and not wanting to be up for like 48 hours when I covered Bhopal, not 24, but 48. Uh, I don't want to be in the desert in 140 degree heat with hardly any water and yada, yada, yada. Uh, so there's the physical part, but without the physical part, no, then is then, now is now, one moves on. Wait, you covered the Bhopal chemical disaster? Yeah. Wow. Well, it really was a wow. And I remember my brother calling me beforehand, one of my two brothers, and just livid. He was so mad. Are you an idiot to go there? Anyway, we went and we probably were idiots because we were just there days after the chemical, you know, leaks and people were still dying. People were still developing new symptoms. It, it was it was horrible. Uh, Shulanaka, I'm trying to think what the name of the really poor section that was hit and you'd see mothers carrying their babies with the baby's eyes were closed shut with mucus and you'd see women crouched down cleaning their pots but having to stop every 10 or 20 seconds to cough up they had no energy. They couldn't breathe well enough. And it was just everywhere you looked. But I remember we were walking to that area. 
and there was this big expanse of it looked green like grass and I started walking and it was there was a lot of liquid it was squunch squunch and out of nowhere sort of the corner of my eye I saw this guy come up and this kid and they wanted when I got further to wash my feet to make sure that whatever the liquid that I had been walking through was washed off my feet they were poor but they cared that here was this foreign visitor coming and they wanted to treat me with respect and you know they were strangers and this little kid washed my feet I mean the details the specificity of the details stick with me still of whether it was Bhopal whether it was the battle of the Zashuf whether it was Uganda whether it was Nicaragua in each place there are little things little moments that are far more meaningful to me than if I interviewed this president or that general or whatever it's the people and early on I, I always believed you find the the real stories and by that I mean what's really happening not the stories that will make your career but the stories that will tell you what's happening are on the ground they're not in the towers in the government mansions etc they're on the ground and I started out in the south side of Chicago wanting to be finally saying yeah I think I'm gonna leave getting my PhD in philosophy and become a reporter and I've always been fascinated especially since I lived in the south side of Chicago with street gangs so fast forward a couple of months when I moved to the mid-north in Chicago I sort of got embedded not in bed but what they call today embedded by my choice into the Latin King street gang and I don't care where I am it doesn't have to be in wars it doesn't have to be in Lebanon it can be in your own backyard but what is happening on the ground is what's really happening and I go off once I got to Canada too and I didn't want to see just long shots of buildings being bombed and blowing up and lots of smoke and coming up what about the people who were there and so I go to villages and I'd I'd report on the ground and then I get back to Toronto and the guys who wanted to interview this is in the 
late 70s, early 80s, uh, they wanted to be in the wars and they wanted to talk to the generals and all the important people. I'd come back and I'd have this little farmer or that housewife or these kids. So I remember at one point I was being sent off and one of the guys said, well, there's Anne going off to do one of her little people stories. Oh, my. <laughs> and some people were saying to me, well, you know, women have a different outlook. They have a different perspective. And that's great, Anne. And I thought, no. I, I mean, maybe we do in many ways, but... This is where the story is. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, fast forward a number of years, and all the guys started doing the little people stories also. Yeah. Because they resonate with the viewers. It's it's yeah. that social history, it's the the true story of what's happening on the ground and that person's perspective. Um and it's a way from the media release that a government agency would send. No. <laughs> I mean, the government agency, I always said, uh, what was his name? He was a assistant secretary of state and he would fly into Lebanon to, you know, try to negotiate peace and all of that. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld? No, this was even before that. Um, I can't think of his name, but what does that mean? So we went into two villages, one Sukhilgar, which is Christian, and Alay, which was Druze. And we said, what peace means is when these two villages aren't bent upon slaughtering every one of the in the other village. That's what peace is. And it it gives it a context, it gives it a reality, and that says more about what is happening in what was happening in Lebanon than how many interviews with how many dignitaries or important people who aren't going to, that, that's what I mean by the reality is on the ground. Yeah, yeah. And, and witnessing, as you mentioned, in Waterloo. Yeah, the, during your talk. Well, and the Ugandan example uh, says it just crystal clear. There we were in Nairobi before we went to Uganda, and all the the two ambassadors, the Canada, the U.S., maybe it was Canada, a British ambassador, and their staff, oh, Museveni doesn't have a chance in hell. The, this main town called Masaka, they've just fought off the government forces. Excuse me. The government forces have just fought off the Museveni rebels. They are, have full control of the ground. Nobody had witnessed it. And when we got there, as you know, we found, oh, well, 
Museveni had total control. What is, is that a product of where you, the organization you were working with? Is that a product of being a Canadian journalist or is that just a product of Anne Medina and having your belief in witnessing that? That's a product of being a reporter. End of story. Whether you're American, whether you're Canadian, whether you're Ugandan, if you want to be a good reporter, that's our job to be witnesses in your place. You're at home in Toronto watching television. And my job is, it sounds simple, but just to tell you and show you, this is what I saw. This is what I heard. This is what I know. You put them all together however you want. It's your judgment of what you want to make of it all. I mean, that's it. You know, I was watching um, um, during my uh, research for this interview, uh, I was watching, and it's on the CBC website, 1984 piece you did for the journal in Syria. You know how I got into Syria? Please tell me. I got in by bribing. Ah, okay. I, I have bribed twice in my life. Once, ironically, getting into Bermuda. Okay. When the QE2 was stranded and all the crews, I was sent out of New York, I was with ABC then, and when we got to the airport in Bermuda, they wouldn't let our gear in till we pressed some money to the flesh. That was one. The second one was getting into Syria. Now, was that that Hamadi guy who's in the documentary? I think his last name was Hamadi. Yeah, Hamadi was working for a doctor. This was his name, Zaboub. Okay. (laughs) Dr. Zaboub was in charge of the press office, etc. Well, we had telex. That's what we did in those days requesting permission to get a visa to enter Syria, driving from Beirut. Well, he wanted something. And you couldn't get it in Syria, but you could get it in Beirut. And what did he want? A meat blender. And not just any old meat blender. It had to be a Moulinex meat blender. A Moulinex meat Moulinex meat blender. And you could just picture this guy's wife <laughs> just saying, Dear, I want a Moulinex meat grinder. <laughs> so we bought one. Off we go. We get the visa. And we go into his office, and he's rubbing his hands. And I'm, oh, I'm so sorry. I left the blender in the hotel. But tomorrow, I will bring it. And we strung him along for days. Oh, <laughs> but that's what got us in. And in Syria, what you learn quickly, well, anywhere in the Middle East, but especially in Syria, um, I've always said what it takes to be a good correspondent are three things. A smile, stamina, and a cast iron stomach, all three of which I have. Now, I should add a fourth, 
patience. And in Syria, boy, was I patient. There's ABC was getting mad and strutting around. No, we've been here for we're getting nothing and yada yada yada. I just sit there, and in the end, we got gold. You had the interviews with the party leaders and uh, the foreign minister, and I, actually, that's why I mentioned Donald Rumsfeld before because he was involved yeah. in this from the U.S. But what I found was so fascinating was well, two things that the the interview you did with the Hamadi who said he was going to arrest your driver because he was filming yeah. children yeah. when he wasn't supposed to. The second thing was the fact that uh, the government. Yes, okay, yeah, and then the government had to go through the, the media copy, the, the television news copy, before yeah. it was read. And then, the, but the third thing, and now that you bring in the meat blender, uh, which, uh, you know, I will look back at that piece with the meat blender in mind, was <laughs> <didn't> when <laughs> you, you talk about um, the, the, the people that you sat with, and they killed two sheep to feed you and your crew. A halfling. Yes. And that, that was magic. One of my messages is always try things. You know, you may like them. Don't be afraid to ask stupid questions. Don't be afraid to explore. And at that hoplet, there was this farmer sitting next to me with totally filthy hands. And you saw the, the video. We're all sitting on the ground and they bring in these big trays of sheep two sheep and he took his arm and reached all the way into the belly of one of the sheep and brought out in his hand this dripping with grease something oh my and he turned to me and he said for you <laughs> and i said oh for me <laughs> Looking at this, uh, and we can probably guess what it might have been. It was round, and in any case, I ate it, and it was so sweet and so delicious. Try it. You may like it. But another, another story, actually, this is also good. We did get an interview with General Sloss, who was really probably, I think it was Hamas, the city where 5,000 were slaughtered Syrians, uh, and probably poison gas. And to get to him, no way, no how, through Dr. Zaboud. But I talked to a lot of people when we were in the hotel and I made friends with this guy and that guy. And <laughs> one Sunday morning, one of the uh, baggage guys comes up to me and says, Miss Medina, Miss Medina, General Sloss and his family are in the dining room. And evidently he came with his family every Sunday morning. So I went into the dining room and I made sure I had combed my hair and put on lipstick because I heard he liked women. And I smiled. <laughs> anyway, he said, certainly we can do an interview. Certainly come to my home. 
<laughs> oh my. Sorry, is this the guy who liked Gina Lola Brigida in the American I was movies? Just say, he's the guy who liked Gina Lola Brigida, who photographed roses and flowers, but when he said, I am in love with this woman, we were like, who, who? Gina Lola Brigida? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, these bizarre things will come out of nowhere, but we got that because I'm talking to some of the little people in the hotel. Syria, when I was there, was a totally socialized state. You didn't see poverty. Everyone seemed to either have a job or a market for their crop. They weren't wealthy, but you didn't see the kind of poverty that you often see in other countries. You'd go into a bank. There'd be 20 people just sitting around doing nothing. So now you have this country, Syria, where this job structure, this socialized, you know, form of government is disintegrating around every one of those 20 people who would sit in the bank and do nothing. And they don't know how to do it for themselves. Um, when I was there, as you said, Hafez Assad was in charge. And people loved him. And I know that because they tell us that they love him, but they also told us that they hated his brother. His brother was head of security, and if it got out that that guy over there hated the head of security into the torture chamber, he goes. So if they were brave enough to tell me they hated the brother, they would have been brave enough to tell me they hated Office aside, but they didn't. The, the son, oh, I don't know. I haven't been there, but I would suspect People don't love him the way they loved his father. What was it in your career uh, at the beginning that led you to become a foreign correspondent? It, it didn't at the beginning. Uh, I didn't had no thought of becoming a foreign correspondent, no wish to become a foreign correspondent. When I was a correspondent with ABC, they actually called me at one point into their office and said, they were offering me London. The plum foreign correspondent position. Oh, yeah. And I said, no thanks. And they said, Miss Medina, do you know what you're just, I mean, we're not going to offer this again, you know. I mean, you are turning down. I said, I know. And I didn't. I didn't want to be a foreign correspondent. I was doing fascinating stories in the States or in Canada, which is where I met husband number two. Anyway, fast forward, I'm living in Canada, and I worked at a program called News Magazine, which was the precursor to the journal documentary section. It was a once a week, Monday nights, either a whole 30-minute program or two 15-minute and they were fast turnaround, topical documentaries, very fast turnaround. 
and we rotated. Very small, very elite group. Peter Kemp was part of it. And, okay, Anne, 1977, your turn. Uh, we're going to send you to Cyprus and then to Israel where they're having some elections. And so we did this Cyprus story of Turkish Cypriots versus Greek Cypriots, yada, 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 and then on to Israel, where I interviewed this funny little guy who was no one, this seems to come into my life many times, no one gave him a chance in hell of getting elected, so no one interviewed him, except yours truly. And his name was Menachem Begin. And we had the only English language brief interview, very brief, uh, with Begin once he got elected. Anyway, I fell in love with the story of the Middle East. The story wherever you are has to drive you. And that story can be in your own backyard. It can be in the Middle East. It can be, but the story itself has to drive you as a reporter. And it just happened that the story I fell in love with was over there. And yeah, there were some wars. So at one point I had interviewed Arafat before the invasion. So when it all, uh, Anne was the logical one to go, and then, well, she's been to this war, so we'll send her to that war in Nicaragua, yada, yada, yada. You became but the expert. It was never, I wouldn't say expert, it was I could deliver. Yeah. And it, well, as I said, I it was never in my plan to be a foreign correspondent. I just fell in love with that story of the Middle East. What stories in the States were you covering that, you know, London just wasn't up to snuff for you? No, it, it was just, it wasn't that it wasn't up to snuff. I just was liking the stories I was doing. It was drug wars. It was street gangs. It was politics. I mean... In 72, I remember I was assigned, I was a junior correspondent at that point for NBC, and I was assigned George McGovern, and those were the days where the primaries weren't the kind of craziness they are today, and there are only two of us who were assigned to, New York Times and me, because uh, no one gave them a chance and help, um, and Following McGovern through the whole primaries, I had a tour of the United States that one could never replicate, whether it was small little Baptist churches in rural northern Florida, whether it was a, a, a big church somewhere in Illinois where all the women had baked pies and casseroles and they put them on tables that ran almost the length of a football field, and I, I met Cesar Chavez. I mean, it was a tour of America that, as I say, you couldn't replicate today. Uh, in addition, I learned the very <laughs> valuable lesson that I carried with me, uh, 
New Hampshire primary uh, the night before there was a meeting of all the NBC folks about how they were going to do the coverage the next day. And they're all saying McGovern hasn't got a chance in hell. Uh, and Muskie, I believe, had cried by then, if indeed he had ever cried. But still, McGovern, he was a one-issue candidate, they said. Vietnam, that was the only thing. And I raised my hand shyly, which is odd for me, but I was new. And I said, I think not. And they all shouted me down. When the meeting broke up, John Chancellor, I love that man. He said, Ann, have you got a second? Why did you say that? And I said, because when I'm with him in the factories, on the floor, and guys come up to him, or in the street, or in the coffee shops, a lot of people are asking him about his tax policies. They're not just talking about Vietnam. And he thought, hmm. Well, next day, McGovern came a close second, and Chancellor then at the primaries or at the convention, and so tell me, what do you know <laughs> that no one else is saying? But I'm looking at London. Did they give you an indication of what they wanted you to cover when you were there? Was it I've just done, going to be London, or was it going to be Europe? Oh no, it was. It was going. I would probably have ended up in Vietnam because that was. 72, 71, I forget the, but Vietnam was definitely on the horizon and wars and, you know, but I didn't even get there. I mean, I didn't think that far ahead. It was just, I'm, I love New York. I love what I'm doing here. Um, and we had just gone through Watergate. I mean, I was doing... Uh, Av Weston, the most wonderful boss I've ever had. Uh, he was executive producer of the Evening News, and he had also started a one-hour prime-time documentary series called Close Up. And when I first came to ABC, I said, uh, Mr. Weston, I've got this idea for a documentary. This is before it had even gone on the air. And he said, what's that, Ann? I said, women's prisons. And he said, oh, yeah, why don't you go research it? Here's some money. Off I went. And in the end, <laughs> I did jails, uh, local jails, state prisons, federal prisons, all on my research trip by myself into Alabama and California and plenty, plenty there. And in the end, I loved the proposal, but he brought in Joe DeCola, a guy oh. to produce it. Okay. But I would, quote, report it. I would be the voice, the person there, you know, do all the interviews, etc. So it wasn't just going to London. It was, you know, I had so many golden opportunities where I was. I great stories, opportunity. I did another documentary on the economy. 
Uh, and that we did just, we were finishing the editing of it when Nixon resigned. We had to re-edit a whole section of it. Uh, anyway, wow. London, no thanks. No thanks, yeah. What was the reaction then for, for you as this young woman working in a newsroom, probably mostly dominated by men, and yep. getting, you know, trying to get your, your story out, pitching a story and having them accept it? I, you see, in those days, I don't know, I never thought of, okay, I'm a woman. I just, I'm a reporter. And to this day, people say, what advice would you give women, young women coming up? I said the same advice I'd give young men getting into the field. And I would. Um, but when I was hired by ABC, uh, the chances of my lasting more than a matter of months was very slim. In the two years before I was hired, Six women had been hired by ABC to be in New York, the New York Bureau, and six women had been fired. So I came into that context. And the reason <laughs> the reason I wasn't fired was I played uh, basketball in high school. And I was very, very good at winding my way just under the basket. My problem was I wasn't very good in shooting the ball into the basket, but I was very good at it. So one of my first assignments in New York, it was Watergate, was to be in the crowd of reporters, cameramen, etc., outside John Mitchell's Fifth Avenue apartment to get him when he comes out or in, etc. Well, basketball star Ann, for some reason, I could wind my way through, and there I was, right in front of John Mitchell with my mic, and you could ask one question. Because then he, you know, and I get the one question in, and no one else would. So on NBC, ABC, CBS that night, there was Ann Medina with right her question. On. <laughs> and that happened three times. And the last time he said, Get away from the door, I'll slam it on your hands. Well, <laughs> When I got back to the office of Weston and everyone, they cheered. I was a star. <laughs> right on. I applaud you now, years later. That is excellent. <laughs> so that's how I got my, uh, how I kept my job at ABC. But I also got my first training job at NBC in Chicago. The network hired me. And there being a woman definitely mattered. I was what was called a triple whammy. And what that meant, because they had all these affirmative action, I was a woman. I had a Spanish surname. And they thought I was Jewish. Why being Jewish was one of the, you know, assimilate. All right, there, that's a check off. She's a triple whammy. 
Okay. So I think that helped me get into the training program initially. I and I thought you were Italian all these years. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. No, I don't. Also, in Waterloo, when I heard you speak, you did talk about the differences between Canadian reporting and American reporting. And of course, at the time that uh, that I heard you speak, you had been in Canada for many years. But coming from, and I guess um, from an American network, and then coming to Canada to a Canadian network, the two countries. Describe the the perspective, the difference. Um, you explained in Waterloo that in um, I, uh, that that it was you know the Americans yeah, were more I, or less I controlled recently, by Washington. I recently was asked, given the disruptions in the whole media, uh, with you know all the social media, etc. You know, think ahead in the future. What's that mean for Canada? And I said, Canada has some advantages and some disadvantages. But one of the advantages is we don't have 20 layers above us telling us what to do. We may have two or three layers, but in the States, they've got like a whole office building of layers which means we, with fewer layers, can be more adaptable, more, you know, we can change, we can move in different ways. And that whole idea sort of crystallized for me when, when I was in Beirut. And we all hung out together, NBC, ABC, CBS, CBC, BBC, et cetera, et cetera. And... The U.S. guys, and they were guys, would get a call from New York or Washington, and they'd say, uh, Joe, uh, this is the story we in Washington or New York want you to cover today. Canada, and this includes CTV also, and CBC, they'd call me up and they'd say, you're on the ground, you're in a position to know, so you tell us what story should you be covering or will you be covering today? That whole notion of having faith in the reporter on the ground, it was just night and day difference. Uh, they also, especially at the journal and news magazine, though that was before Lebanon, um, but there was this, you didn't have to vet scripts as much. And when, when we would do a story, we couldn't half the time vet a script from Beirut. Even the telexes might be down. Uh, so they would get, we would satellite our report, and it could be a 15-minute item, could be a six-minute item, whatever, and sight unseen till they got it back in Toronto and they put it on the air that night. That would never happen in the States. And CBS, 60 Minutes at one point, came to us at News Magazine saying, how do you do these quick turnarounds? You know, 15-minute items, you go to Nicaragua, you go to El Salvador, 
and then you have the report on the air 15 minutes a week later. How do you do it? And they tried to do it and they couldn't do it because there's so many layers. And that kind of letting the independence, if you will, of the reporter, let the reporter be the reporter, do what a reporter does, was just so key and good for Canada. But the main thing is good for our Canadian bosses. They were the secret weapon, if you will, of why News Magazine and then the Journal were so good. Do you remember some of the stories that you worked on at the Journal when it first came on? I would do all kinds of stories. I remember one of my favorite was a, a, full, a full segment, 40 minutes, on Harvest in Canada. And the crew and the producer and I got in the van and we drove from Winnipeg to Vancouver, stopping along the way in Saskatchewan and Alberta and, I mean, small farms, big, rich farms, the Boxel family to this day. I remember going out with them in the field as they're doing the harvest, and then it started to rain, and the wife, you know, preparing the meals that were rushed out to the field because they, you can't waste time and harvest. You got to you know, always be doing it if it's not raining. Anyway, it was just, it was, it was magical. Uh, I remember one time I did a story in Vancouver of the middle class poor. And there was this guy who had a bit of a stubble. And he had been some kind of a middle manager. And uh, he showed us his closet. And in his closet was one crisply pressed white shirt that he was saving if he ever got an interview. His electric razor had broken. He couldn't afford to get it repaired. So he had two little plastic razors that, again, he was using as little as he could so he could shave himself for the interview if he ever got it. I can just imagine the person, I did not meet him, but I can just imagine visually in my mind the person with the stubble and the white shirt, saving that white shirt for the interview. And, you know, in middle-class incomes, you know, a number of other stories that you've mentioned, where did you get the ideas for the story, um, the, the pitch process of, of getting great stories like this done? Uh, I don't think I always had the idea. Sometimes the desk would assign it and you'd say, yes, I'd like that. And sometimes they wouldn't. At one point early, Starowitz wanted to institute, institute something called storyboards. Mark Starowitz, what was his title again? Executive producer. He was executive, okay you would write out the story that you were proposing to cover and they'd have a meeting the producers and they would then go through the storyboards etc I said you gotta be kidding when I go out in a story I don't know what I'm gonna find and if I do think 
I know what I'm going to find, which is what most of the reporters today do. They think they know what they're going to find. It's like having blinders on. You're going to miss the gold. You're going to miss the treasures. So at one point I said, Mark, I'm not going to do any more storyboards. And if you want me to just sit in this office, fine. But storyboards is not what journalism and reporting is about. And he finally got it. All you really need is, I guess, a one-sentence idea and or one word. I mean, it could be, okay, Contras, Nicaragua, done. That's all. Sandinista first election, done. Uh, Middle class poor, either done or not done. Uh, There's no formula, but the more you flesh out the story, the more you're going to limit what you're going to find. And I remember going to China and... I made that mistake. I thought I knew what I was going to find. And this was pre-Tiananmen Square. And the whole cultural revolution had taken place. And I figured, you know, I'd find that I forget whatever it was. But I remember sitting doing an interview with a young student who spoke English She had been provided to us by the Chinese, you know, minders. And I asked her, and there were demonstrations taking place all over at that point. And I asked her, she disagreed with the the demonstrations. And I said, why did you, why didn't you think the demonstrations were, were good or what was wrong with them? She would go on and on. Of course, she was a member of the Communist Party. Both parents were, which was very unusual to have three in one family. And there's the minder sitting right there. And for some reason, I said, tell me again, what was it about what they were demonstrating for that you were against? And she said, oh, I wasn't against what they were demonstrating for. We need more economic freedom. I was just against the fact that they were demonstrating. I mean, a whole new chapter opened up in my documentary. And as we went, here was a hardcore communist, yes, a student, telling us, more economic freedom. And as we went, we found, we went to some rural area. They were farmers, staunch communists. uh, And they too were saying, oh no, we need economic freedom. And it may come to political freedom, but right now, economic freedom, and we've got to start thinking about political also, but I remember the guy at CTV, who I forget his name, who was stationed in Beijing. After the documentary ran, 
He said that was one of the best documentaries about China he'd ever seen. It opened his eyes uh, in a way. And partly it's a fresh eye coming to a story. Definitely without a storyboard, once I had interviewed that student, any mental storyboard was totally tossed out the window. You gotta, you gotta explore. You gotta be ready for those surprises and go with it and search for them. Yeah, there's nothing in a storyboard that's going to tell you what that student told you. No. I was asking you about the the switch from um, the uh, American networks coming to the Canadian networks and then being a foreign correspondent. Um, take me back then, backwards from uh, working in regional television and un until you came to New York to work with a, a networks. What was that entire um, approach I like? I loved it. I my first real reporting job. I was hired as a trainee in Chicago, and in those days, they sent all of their uh, correspondents through Cleveland, WKYC, uh, because you do everything there. And up until that point, you know, every correspondent you saw on NBC had all first gone through Cleveland. It was an owned and operated station. And I've said to my students sometimes that probably those were the days when I was the best reporter. Um, I established my own beat. They fell over backwards. What do you mean housing? Well, I wanted housing. That meant, you know, asbestos. That meant urban de renewal, urban development, model cities, slums, slum landlords. I mean, it was a gold mine for stories. And uh, I just, all I can say is, I loved it, and I had a little pink. <laughs> I was the ghetto reporter, basically, in addition, yeah. But I had this pink little short raincoat, okay. <laughs> sort of. And I go, you know, smack into the middle of the ghetto, and this pink little, you know, and I think my hair was even teased then a little bit on the top, uh, but. Again, like going through checkpoints, if you smile and show you're not afraid because you're not afraid, even though you're bloody stupid and you should be afraid, um, that there is a connection that's made. And so what I learned in Cleveland was... I don't know. It was just how to maybe just be me and hi, talk to people. Yeah, my name's Ann Medina. I'm a reporter and I understand there's been a little problem, whatever. Uh, and I guess probably what I learned is that people responded. Um, but again, whether it was local whether it was in Beirut, whether it was Canada, reporting is basically the same thing. Being curious, asking questions, getting to know people. You, you talk about philosophy 
But you studied philosophy, but did where did you study journalism? I never did. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, but if you think about it, there, and I had no intention of being a journalist, but if you think about it, there could be no better training to be a journalist than studying philosophy. Uh, how to think objectively, how to stand back. Um, anyway, uh, I got my master's. I had completed all the coursework and the exams for the doctorate. All that was left was the dissertation. But philosophy was crazy all over the United States. It was split right down the middle with the behaviorists and the traditionalists and so long story. But and that. They were the days of the Vietnam protests, SDS, civil rights. And I'm just saying, God, with all this going around me, what am I doing? And I'd watch TV news and there'd be an SDS demonstration. I'd see it on the news and I'm going, that's not what happened. Um, I think I... I know what's happened, and that didn't happen that way. So that's how I got interested in journalism, uh, TV. And I remember I got my first job when I looked at ABC Local News, and I wrote, picked three stories. I'd do a paragraph on what they did, and then I'd do a paragraph on what the way I would have done it. Second story, same thing, two paragraphs, third, one page. That's all I had to read, hired. And I went out and I did my own radio reports uh, just to show them what kind of reporting I would do. And I had to put them together and, you know, edit them and all of that. And I figured it out. I was then a trainee at, at NBC in Chicago, WMAQ, I think it was. And the network was going to do a white paper on migrant labor. So I knew that that meant that they're going to be interested in stories about migrant labor. So on my weekends, I went out to a migrant farm, migrant labor farm, and did some research over three or four weekends. And I came back and I went into the network office and I said, here's a story. And you will go to hut number three where you will talk to Maria Hernandez, and this is what Maria Hernandez will tell you, and you will get the hell out of there by quarter of noon when the farmer will come around, probably with a shotgun. And here are the directions of the farm. Here's what kind of business they do. The network just loved it. So the, the journalist... Fred Briggs, he was the correspondent who was assigned to it. He wanted me to be the producer. Me, a little, you know, trainee. And they said no, but Fred said, Ann, you're coming with us anyway. And they did the story, and it got on NBC Nightly News. Excellent story. I'm still, I'm having a lot of wow moments today, Ann. I do remember I came back from Beirut at one point. And they said, Ann, we're going to give you a treat. You're going to go to New York and you're going to whatever those things are where 
you know, new movies are coming out. And so you go into a room and you have 15 minutes with the star. I said, I don't know any of this. Yeah, well, go in by yourself and you'll bring us back a report. Well, I got Hoffman, Dustin Hoffman. I didn't get him. I mean, I was on the list to interview him. I am so nervous. I'm shaking. And so he sits down and I'm going, I don't know what to ask you. I've never done this before. I was I was over in Beirut just two weeks ago. I mean, and he gets up and puts his arm around me facing the camera because it's a two camera shoot. And he says, this is Ann Medina. You watch. She's going to do a great job. <laughs> and then he gets up and sits down. And, and I mean, again, it's moments like that. Well, Dustin well, Dustin Hoffman, yeah. At what point, what what movie was in his career at the that you were interviewing? I think it was Tootsie. Tootsie? So, something tells me it was Tootsie, okay. but I could be wrong. That what the, a hunk. That it <laughs> what a hunk. I'll take one of him. <laughs> Actually, uh, one other story. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Tell me story. Um, whenever I would travel, you're going to laugh. I am a nut. I'd buy a bird. <laughs> uh, a live bird. Okay. A live bird. <laughs> like not and a roasted cake. chicken at the grocery store no, or anything. Okay. No, no. <laughs> and it was company in the hotel rooms. And, you know, and they could fly around, little birds, and they'd always go back to their cage where the food was. So in China, we were going to Changsha, I think it was, somewhere in the interior. And I had my little bird with me in a cage in my purse, little tiny cage. And our Beijing minder was with us. And we got off the plane and it was freezing. And the minder told this lineup of dignitaries to, that were there to greet us, Quick, we must get Miss Medina into some place warm. And you can see them thinking, this wimp, Medina. Okay, and they took us into this room in some kind of a warehouse or whatever. And I opened the purse. And before that, there had been the official representative of the workers, the official representative of Changsha, County, the official representative, everyone was the official representative, and we, of course, were the official representatives of the Canadian Broadcasting. Everything was very official. Well, we got in there, and I took out the birdcage with a little bird. You have never seen such a transformation. They all circled around the bird. They started... Oh, it turns out they were saying, oh, no, no, you must feed it this kind of seed. No, 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 feed it these worms. No, 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 no. And magically, there were no official representatives after that. We got access. I mean, I was the lady of the, with the bird. I was, they love birds in China. That's not why I did it. But that op that little bird opened more doors <laughs> in official China 
than you can imagine. But what what started the birds though? You just company? Yeah, I I had I have an aviary, and I had an aviary then at home in Toronto, and I had a parrot, but lots of little birds flying around, and it's like a room, but it's like a a greenhouse, and it's I still have it, and if you you know I've got the one-legged Bernie Canary behind me. Uh, he's keeping me company here, mainly because I have to. He's hurt, so he's fine now, but he's still got one leg. But anyway, I love birds, and it was a way of. And I would, except for the China bird, I never. I'd always give them away, and people everywhere love birds, and they there'd be the maid in the room who kept the bird in uh, in the Philippines when we were in Mindanao. It was, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, it sounds like you, although you were a reporter, although you were a, a foreign correspondent, you would approach the people who were you were interviewing, just in my impression, with the, the story of the bird, as just a normal person, just a friend. And that's why when you said... John Chancellor, oh my God! Of course, I also said, you know, the hunk actor. So, but when you really get down to it, you know, here's this General Sloss who was in love with Jean Brigida. And I remember a judge, low-class judge that we met in Syria and Damascus, and we went to his apartment, and... He had two daughters, and his wife was there, and the two daughters, just like, and that was in the documentary, you know, there they were on the phone with their friends and wanting to, and what did she want? She wanted new curtains, uh, new draperies, and I haven't seen that for a while, but I still remember it. She's badgering her husband for, you know, and she's got to work on a second job to get some of the money for those draperies. People... Yeah, I look at them of what we have in common. Yeah, it's a, it's a case of where we all put our pants on the same way, one leg at a time. <laughs> well, those who wear pants. Those who wear pants. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a very astute comment by an excellent reporter. <laughs> and, you know, but in Saudi Arabia, they don't all wear pants. Right. <laughs> and Medina doesn't know. Actually, I do always wear pants. But, you know. You heard it first, right here. <laughs> Former foreign correspondent Anne Medina. We had a lot of laughs during that interview. It was a pleasure to speak to her and to hear some exciting stories from her time as a foreign correspondent for CBC Television. She also covered stories for the networks in the U.S., ABC, and NBC. Now, here are the opening comments she made in January of 1991 that lit a spark for this young reporter. I remember I was in Uganda when... Museveni was trying to win the war against the then government there. And we were told in all of the newspapers that one of the key towns, Masaka, had been held by the government against Museveni, and that the rebel of Museveni were these ragtag little army and they couldn't make much of a dent. And indeed, the government military forces were fairly secure in, in their control of Masaka. Everybody believed it. Nobody knew differently. We tried to get into Masaka, we could not. 
And all we could report at that point was, this is what we were being told. Finally, we managed through devious means to get into Misaka. And what to our wondrous eyes did we see? But Museveni's people had very definitely full control of that city. Reporters to be reporters must be witnesses because again and again in South Lebanon, in Uganda, in how many situations in the Middle East that I've covered, I found that I'm told one thing and when I actually see it and witness it, something else happens. One of the questions being raised is how we as Canadians can provide some kind of an independent reportage. Well, I must say, when I reported, I never thought, how am I going to differentiate myself from US reporting or British reporting or French reporting or whatever? I just went out, and I know I just went out and did my job. That sounds corny. But that's, in fact, what I did. And there were times, I'm sure, that what I reported might be seen to be exactly the same as what some of the US correspondents with the networks were reporting. But that didn't concern me. It was what I felt I was seeing, what I felt I was hearing, what I knew I was going to be your eyes and report what I saw back to you. That's all I could do. So I'm not sure this emphasis on being independent is quite the way I would approach it. It would be more be reporters, be damn good reporters. And there may be sometimes that you will sound as if it's US propaganda. And there may be times where it'll sound as if it's Iraqi or Palestinian propaganda. But if reporters go out and do their job, I think that Canadians will know. And I think that perhaps, more than anything, is, is where we will be, quote, independent. And I've made this distinction many times. In the States, the US networks are run and controlled and vetted through Washington and New York. When I was in Beirut, I would get a call from CBC in Toronto, and you're on the ground, what do you think the story is? That's not the case in the States. New York, Washington calls the reporter in Beirut and says, I know we're many hundreds of thousands or uh, many thousands of miles away, and we have a certain perspective in Washington, but this is the story we think you and Beirut ought to cover today. That independence that can our bosses, that Canadian media bosses allow the reporters in the field is what's going to distinguish Canadian reporting from US reporting. We will not be waving the flags to the extent that they may in the British or the American or some of the other networks because the bosses at CDV and CBC will say, you're in the field, you're in the best place to tell us what's going on, what do you know? Finally, I want to comment just briefly on the CNN diplomacy. It is certainly felt that not as much diplomacy went on during the build-up to tonight as has gone on in the past, and sometimes the media is the one to be blamed. There is the thought that so much of what has, quote, been negotiated has been only in front of the cameras, where the rhetoric 
ends up as being the bottom line rather than the background negotiations. Now, I'm not one of those that is blaming CNN. I will blame the diplomats. I will blame the leaders. And I remember when Sadat and Begin and the Egypt, Egypt and Israel peace negotiations were going on, the media was accused of the same thing, Barbara Walters and Walter Cronkite and everyone making statements through the media. But that didn't preclude substantial and lengthy negotiations in addition taking place behind the scenes. And those negotiations brought a very significant, as we know, peace treaty. So I am not as concerned as some with CNN. I am very concerned with the role of the leadership may have played in terms of their pushing through negotiations. To sum up, I'm very pessimistic about the possibilities that reporters will be able to be reporters in the truest sense, but I am optimistic that to the extent to which anybody can be reporters, that the Canadians out there will do a very good job. Thank you. You've been listening to Station to Station. I'm Joe Pavia. Check out other podcasts, blogs, and photos that are posted to the website. If you want to get in touch, you can leave a reply at the bottom of this page or send an email to s2spod at gmail.com. That's the number two. You'll also find that address on the About Joe page of the website. Subscriptions to my podcast are free. If you follow this site, you'll receive instant notification via email of a new post. All you have to do is go to the bottom of the homepage and enter your email address. You can even sign up a friend. That's all. We'll see you on the next podcast.